Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. For nine months, I've been working as a producer for Neil Denigrate, the host of the Denigrate Report on Fox. The attitude of this show totally disgusts me, but working here is the only way I can pursue my dream of a life of artistic freedom in New York. Wolf, get in here. Yes, Mr. Denigrate. Call me Neil. Yes, Neil. No, call me Mr. Denigrate. Yes, sir. I'm looking for the rundown tonight, Wolf. But first of all, how would you say the show is doing? The show, sir? The show is on fire. It's on fire, Wolf. Anytime I ask you, that's what you say. Uh, On fire, sir. I didn't ask. Did I ask? Only do it when I ask. Now, first segment tonight. Are climate change scientists unpatriotic racists? Here's where I want to go. Who was the British Prime Minister, Neville Taboola? Chamberlain, sir. He wanted to give up, right? Let the Nazis invade the Danube or whatever. That's what these scientists are like. They want us to give up our way of life every time a glacier melts. Make sure we have B-roll of that guy, Baba Ganoush. Chamberlain. Screw it! I'll deal with it live! Why is it all on me? I ask for support, and all I get is hummus and kebab. Maybe we can talk about the second segment, sir. Wendy Davis is abortion Barbie. I'm wondering if that goes a little too... Are we going to do that thing where I propose a pistol duel with chicken shawarma? Chuck Schumer? And then the debate at the end. Left versus right. Dennis Miller versus Phil Tandoori, the duck call guy. Aren't they both on the right, sir? I don't know. That's what I have research for. Mr. Denigrate, I have something to say. I've never believed... In the things you believe in, this show and this network have to stop dividing America or I'll have to leave, sir. Michelle Bachman is still a good-looking woman. I'd like to clean her whole body with a spanakopita. Were you talking, Wolf? Never mind, sir. And you mean squeegee. On today's show, hear what it's like to work for a news organization that doesn't share your values. And now... Colin McEnroe. That NPR wussy talk pansy cream puff wise ass college punk. He makes me want to spread tzatziki sauce all over Ann Coulter. All right. I didn't realize I inspired that kind of contempt uh, from the Neil Denigrate show, which I do occasionally watch, actually. It's, uh, you make some interesting points. All right. So uh, the, the scenario that you heard there was uh, basically about eight years in the life of our guest Joe Muto. He's the author currently of An Atheist in the Foxhole. Emphasis on Fox, a liberal's eight-year odyssey inside the heart of the right-wing media. Um, Joe Muto is here in studio with us as we go along. We should say he's going to be at the the Twain House tonight, I believe at 7 p.m., to uh, talk about his book, tell his story, uh, and uh, sign copies of said book. That starts at 7 p.m. It's free, uh, and you know where the Twain House is. We'll be emphasizing that repeatedly as we go along here today. So um, let's sort of, first of all, Joe Muto, welcome. Thank you for having me, Colin. That intro was scarily accurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should say, actually, this is jumping ahead in the story, but <clears throat> as some people may remember, uh, Bill O'Reilly was named in a sexual harassment um, lawsuit by a, a producer on the show, uh, and, and part of the 
one of the contentions was that uh, he was calling her and talking about how much he wanted to wash her up with a, a loofah sponge, but he <laughs> confused that with falafel at a certain point, creating uh, almost a subcategory of American humor in the process. But you were you were there in the Fox building the day that story broke, right? And you describe in 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 breathtaking uh, with breathtaking suspense. What was like you? Almost, you had the smoking gun thing up on your screen as he walked in, right? I mean, that was about. I'd been working there maybe two months, three months when that whole story broke, and the I wasn't working directly for O'Reilly at that point, but the the, the entire newsroom at one point was reading <laughs> this very, you know, very. It was very salacious this lawsuit, and it was very, you know, I, I don't know how much of it was true, but if 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 any fraction of it was remotely true it was the funniest thing i've ever read so so i mean and there was a lot of you know uh, there was a lot of uh, schadenfreude in the in the newsroom sort of at this you know at this thing happening uh to our you know our our biggest star and you know most sort of feared and 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 sometimes loathed uh personality yeah and we'll we're going to talk a little bit about i mean the the it is an interesting inside look at the personality of Bill O'Reilly, which, to my way of thinking, is as interesting as his actual political views and the role he plays in journalism. Who who he is as a person is is amazing in, in and of itself. But we need to sort of back up a little bit and well, and let's sort of sketch out the bare bones of the story. The bare bones of the story is you're a guy who you get done with college. You have a kind of interest in journalism and politics and stuff like that. You know somebody who knows somebody who, who's got a possible in with the Fox Digital Division. And, and sort of despite your politics, which skew sort of Clinton left anyway, Clinton Democrat, right. you wind up working for Fox News, right? Right. I sort of stumbled, mm-hmm. <laughs> stumbled backwards into this into this job, um, you know, and 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 I went into it with with the best possible intentions. I was going to make a go of it. And I I was delighted to be in New York City. And I was, you know, I, I thought I could, you know, push my personal distaste for the politics of the network down. And for, for many years, I was able to do that. And you thought you were going to work actually for their digital division. But very quickly, you got snagged to be a production assistant. Was that the first job? Right, right, yeah. I was. I'd, I'd been a film and television major in college, and I, I envisioned myself as a, you know, that I'd, I'd write news copy for their website. But they, they saw me and said, "Oh, this guy's got some video, you know, video skills. Let's put him on the TV side." So your odyssey includes a couple of different stops along the way, including a show which I conv- I confess I had never heard of until I read about it in your book, the lineup. Uh, somehow or other, I missed the lineup. Um, the lineup, yeah, was our uh, a short-lived crime show. Um, and it's sort of in the Nancy Grace vein, I guess you could say. But the, the host, Kimberly Guilfoyle, was not quite as, you know, tenacious <laughs> pursuing these stories as, as Nancy Grace. So that show quickly, you know, I, I think it was I, I think it also aired it, it aired at 10 o'clock on Saturday and Sunday night. It's not exactly a prime spot for uh, for these shows. But but one of the well, actually, while we're on this, though, you know, it raises an interesting question, which I think is sort of behind um, some of the scenarios that are in this book too. Yeah. So they what they did was that they they had a concept, they paired it up with what seems to be this kind of endless supply of attractive blonde women who can be news anchors or or show hosts and stuff like that. Whom in, in your book you talk about the fact that some of them really are that Megan you say Megan Kelly for example is a really serious smart journalist. She just happens to be really hot. But <laughs> but there's also just this endless other supply of them with varying degrees of intellectual attainment. Um, but it almost seems like maybe the difference between your host of that show uh, and, and Nancy Grace is 
Nancy, every atom of Nancy Grace's being, no matter how depraved I think that show is, every atom of her being is committed to the concept of that show. Whereas it's a little bit harder just to take somebody and marry them up to material. Right, right. And then Fox is always doing experiments that don't kind of work out, you know. And they and 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 uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle is still with the network, and she's mm. on their five o'clock show called The Five, <laughs> which is which is shockingly popular. It's it's one of the highest rating rated shows on the network now. So she she found her niche eventually. It just she wasn't maybe quite um, uh, adept at hosting a show by herself. She needed that like cushion of the five person panel. We should say that the story that we're going to tell here culminates uh, famously or infamously uh, in Joe's decision to become a mole. Uh, He can't take it anymore. Uh, He offers his services from inside Fox uh, to the website Gawker uh, and becomes the Edward Snowden slash Chelsea Manning uh, of uh, of Fox News, except it doesn't really last all that long. But we'll we'll try to tell you some of that story as we go along here. You know, as you first – I mean, first of all, I don't – I don't watch a lot of this kind of television. I mean, not only do I not watch Fox News, I don't watch MSNBC or CNN or anything like that either, unless it's on at the gym or something like that. But, I mean, what what I hear about Fox is that when they're not in that evening rotation uh, of of these highly politicized show hosts or not doing Fox and Friends or whatever that thing is that Saturday Night Live is always making fun of, that, you know, there's just sort of news coverage. And, and I mean, I'm aware of Fox News journalists who are just good, solid news journalists, right? I mean, it's not that every single tick of the clock in a Fox News day is all about ideology. I would argue that in the age of Obama, that's actually sort of what it morphed into. <laughs> yeah. When yeah. It, when I started there in, in 04, that was more true, is that the, the primetime was very politicized, but the daytime news coverage was a bit more straightforward. But mm-hmm. once, you know, January 20th, 2009, Obama took office and the entire network sort of, you know, radicalized and, and, and went off in a pretty far right direction. And, and when Sense is reading the book, that's when the big squeeze starts to come on you, too, that that you start to struggle more and more with your own role in there. One of the interesting things you say, too, is that like a lot of people in 2008, Fox News was completely unprepared for Barack Obama. They they didn't think he was anything more than a statistical outlier initially. Yeah, they were, you know, people were busy cobbling together, you know, taped pieces about how bad Hillary Clinton is. You know, they're probably, <laughs> you know, probably had some Vince Foster researchers out there, too. And, uh, you know, this this Obama guy, everyone's like, oh, yeah, he's, you know, nice looking guy and can give a good speech. But there's no way he can beat the Hillary jugger, juggernaut. So <laughs> it was, you know, it was, it was a shocker to us as, as much as anyone when he started winning. Um, by the way, as we go along here, if you have questions, uh, our guest is Joe Mudo. The book is An Atheist in the Foxhole, which is about his eight-year odyssey inside Fox News, culminating in his decision uh, to to become a mole. Uh, our number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Uh, you, can tweet, you may tweet us at WNPRCollin. Um, well, let me just ask you the question that everybody probably asks you, given who you are and what you believed and how you'd voted uh, and intended to continue voting. And I mean, you even came clean to co-workers during Obama's rise. Uh, I mean, not many co-workers, but you did tell them ultimately you were an Obama sympathizer. You were going to vote for Obama. Given who you were, I mean, how hard was it for you to come to work every day and do this other stuff? It, I mean, it, it got increasingly difficult and it was – it was at various points harder than others. You know, mm-hmm. when I was when I was on that crime show, for example, you know, there was no there was no ideological bent to that crime show. It, it was 
it was anti-criminal, like, mm-hmm. you know, like it was anti-murderer, I guess, but it wasn't like not anything about Obama. But as you know, as we got further and further into the Obama administration, and I I could see that you know the 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 hysteria, the anti-Obama hysteria was not subsiding. If anything, it was getting worse. I knew I couldn't sit through another election season with, mm. <laughs> you know, at Fox News and still look at myself in the mirror every day. So we should give people a sort of an example or t- tell a story or two here. What are the things that you had to do? I mean, uh, we're sort of once again skipping ahead in your odyssey, but at a certain point you wind up going work, uh, going to work for Papa Bear, uh, Bill O'Reilly. One of the things that O'Reilly does, he's not the first to do it, is occasionally do these kind of ambush segments where uh, where he sends somebody out to uh, just to take, take somebody else by surprise. So you got assigned or you volunteered actually to um, to be part of an ambush on Rosie O'Donnell. I'll, I'll let you pick up the story from there. Well, Rosie had been, this was shortly after her you know tenure on The View. She had sort of washed out of there by saying, you know, she had spouted some 9-11 conspiracy theories. Mm. And she had also um, talked about O'Reilly's uh, harassment lawsuit, which, mm. you know, Got his, att- mm-hmm. <laughs> got his attention right away, obviously. Mm-hmm. So he'd, he'd been planning this ambush of her. It had been months in the making, I think. And our main ambush guy, uh, a guy named Jesse Waters, st- still there, still does, still does ambushes for Bill, and, and does a you know does a good <laughs> does a good job. You can argue about the journalistic uh, you know ethics of, of ambush interviews, but you know he's he's one of the best in the game at it. But uh, he he needed some help on this. <laughs> On this interview or on this uh, on this ambush, so we went and we got her at a uh, bookstore in uh, at a book signing. At a book watch, signing, watch out tonight, Joe. I know. <laughs> I know. I would not be surprised. Payback is hell. I would. Not, it'd be my just desserts if, yeah. if uh, they ambush me tonight, but I, I don't think they will. Um, <laughs> but uh, we you know we we waited in line with uh, you know we O'Reilly told us you know dress up nice, don't look like maniacs, just try to blend in with the crowd. So we're there, two guys in our twenties. We're wearing. Khakis and and, bla- and you know blue blazers, and meanwhile we're surrounded by like middle aged ladies and mm-hmm. <laughs> in uh, in track suits, you know. Like it wasn't exactly we 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 sort of misjudged what the uh, surrounding crowd would be. Um, but you know we we waited in line for a couple hours. There were mm-hmm. you know thousand people there waiting to get their books signed by her, and we got up to her, and I pulled the camera out of my you know little shoulder bag and and started taping as as Jesse asked her questions, and she was you know. She was game at first. She played along, and then he he started asking the um, you know nine eleven conspiracy stuff, and her her goons sort of <laughs> removed us from the premises pretty quickly. Well, actually, the, the, this segment in the book is kind of interesting too because it really does kind of go into the anatomy of one of these ambush things. Uh, because first of all, one of the points that you make is that she has no choice but to be somewhat not nice. Because ultimately you're creating video. First of all, she can't have goons, you know, shove their hands in front of the lens. She can't because that's exactly what's going to work. That she has to <laughs> not. She has to give them as she has to, she has to give you in the Bill O'Reilly show as little to work with as possible. Right. It's, it's sort of a lose lose scenario for the person being ambushed because if they answer your questions, then O'Reilly wins, and if they pitch a big fit and have you thrown out of the venue, then. That's that's an even better. That's even better video. That's our promo, you know. Mm. You know, for that night's show, you know, why, why won't Rosie O'Donnell want? Why won't she come on the show and well, talk to and, us? And that you, we should stop there oh. and say that that's another point that you make. That the approach is often, why won't you come on the show, as opposed to jumping ugly with somebody right away, like what about your nine eleven uh, conspiracy theories? Instead, it's why won't you come on the show? Because that's sort of a nicer overture, right? And that and that's our that's our fig leaf too. Is is we you know. 
that's always our reason for ambushing them, as, as we would say. We say, mm-hmm. well, you know, we asked you, we invited you to come on the show. You wouldn't come. So obviously we had to come find you. You know, like mm-hmm. that's our that's our veneer of uh, journalistic respectability that we used to. Put and, on you, and you said that O'Reilly frequently will send people out to do that or use that fig leaf in situations where, in fact, he really doesn't want the person on the show at all. Uh, it's just something to say. Right, right. And one one time we actually ambushed someone without, you know, <laughs> someone forgot to actually invite them to be on the show. So we said, <laughs> we invited you to be on the show. And the guy said, no, you didn't. <laughs> Why are you at my front door? All right. We're talking to Joe Muto. His uh, book is An Atheist in the Foxhole. He will be at the Mark Twain House tonight to uh, read, talk, sign, do all those book things. 7 p.m. Uh, you should come see him. This is about his time kind of um, – well, not exactly living a double double life, but living a complicated life, shall we say, uh, as a person with liberal political inclinations while working for Fox News. If you have questions about this, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. One question that I received via email earlier today, and it's one that I think a lot of people who are not sort of diehard Fox fans wonder, is, um, is to what degree... And, and it's it, it clearly reading your book. I mean, the answer is this is going to vary a lot from person to person and from show to show and from host to host. But people sort of wonder to what degree is this all simply about creating a kind of product that will amass terrific ratings uh, and, and make money irrespective of the content? And to what degree is everybody there a true believer in the content itself? So, I mean, when what emerges from your book is is a pretty complicated answer to that question. I think the answer to that question is 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 it's sort of both, you know, mm-hmm. like it's it's run by uh, uh, Roger Ailes runs the network, and he's a, you know, he's a Republican operative. He's literally, yeah. <laughs> literally helped Nixon get elected, helped you know Bush Senior get elected, and 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 went into tele, you know, he's a media consultant. So he's you know he's got he's got skin in the game, and he wants to see Republicans get a, get elected and see his, this conservative ideology get spread to the mainstream. But at the same time, he, you know, he was put in charge of this network by Rupert Murdoch, who is also his ideology leans that way. But he also loves money, <laughs> and he loves making money. And and Fox Fox News does make a lot of money. It gets you know it gets good numbers, and you know it's 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 a win win thing for them. I think it it all. But it also one of the interesting little schisms that you document in the book is this notion that for at least to a certain degree, uh, a guy like Sean Hannity. Um, is a little bit more of a cherished son for Roger Ailes because Sean Hannity is much less likely to break with the party line. I mean, you pretty much, you know, if you follow any news issue, you pretty much know what Sean Hannity's talking points are going to be on on a given night. Um, And then they become the talking points for lots of other people who have smaller market talk radio shows. But O'Reilly, because he's a little less predictable from because occasionally he'll he'll go on his own script which doesn't necessarily fit the standard issue for Fox News, he actually was not, even though he was this gigantic star. He wasn't the kind of favorite son that, that Hannity was. No, yeah, Ailes, Ailes does not love him because O'Reilly does sort of go his own way a lot of the time on, on certain issues and and will, you know, stick to his own internal logic. You know, whereas, whereas someone like Han- Hannity's more of a hack, really. He's He doesn't... He'll he'll turn around and reverse viewpoints on a on a regular basis just to you know just to stick to the Republican line, whereas O'Reilly tr- O'Reilly tries doesn't always succeed but tries not to contradict himself <laughs> on a daily basis, um, and you know Ailes Ailes prizes loyalty and you know 
O'Reilly ultimately knows where his bread is buttered, so he won't openly defy Ailes and the other executives. But, you know, he they get a lot of pushback. If you try to push him in a direction he doesn't want to go, you'll, you know, it's he'll, he'll make it a nightmare for you. Yeah. And there, I, I've now I lost the detail, but there are, there is at least one story in there in your book about how um, oh, I know what it was. It's when um, O'Reilly wants to talk about the way in which um, the, re- the the bailout is being mischaracterized by some right wing talk show hosts, and that that it, he has a different take on it, and he refers to these talk show hosts with their fancy cigars and their private jets and stuff. And he wants to do that. He wants to, and he's pretty obviously, you know, singling out Rush Limbaugh. Uh, in this way. And there is pressure to get that out of the script. And they eventually win, right? They they beat him down. That's true. He wanted to, I think, replay the actual radio rant that he had given that afternoon on the on the TV show that night. And, and you know, Ailes stepped in and said, no, you cannot. <laughs> you cannot attack even even a veiled attack. You cannot attack Rush Limbaugh on 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 this network. You know, Ailes, Ailes and Limbaugh are friends. Hannity and Limbaugh are pretty close. Um, O'Reilly and Limbaugh can't stand each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're 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 very alike in many ways. I think those two. They're very you know, no shortage of ego on either side there. So that's probably part of the reason they can't stand to be in the same room with each other. But um, but yeah, but you know, Ailes stepped in and said, "This this is going to happen. This is you know, I'm the boss, and you know, take this out of the show." And O'Reilly pitched a big fit and. Did a nice cursing jag <laughs> behind uh, the closed door of his office, but you know he went on TV that night and did what he was told. Uh, his ability to take advice from anybody is seems pretty limited in this book. There's a story that we can't really tell here on Nice Public Radio. You're going to have to either buy Joe Muda's book or go to the Mark Twain House. Uh, but if you go to the Twain House tonight, ask him to tell you the story of the fake name on an email that, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that Bill O'Reilly wanted to read on the air. It's, it's very funny. And, and the adaptation that's made is even funnier. But, but if, you may have actually already seen this on YouTube because I, I gather it went kind of viral. But um, but anyway, uh, his ability, inability to listen even to reason in a situation like that is pretty funny. Why don't we grab a break here? If you want to call in, our number 860-275-7266. We'll be back after this. Look at me. I am where you will We're back. We're back with Joe Mudo. He's the author of An Atheist in the Foxhole, A Liberal's Eight-Year Odyssey Inside the Heart of Right-Wing Media. Um, got a bunch of things I want to talk about in this segment. If people have questions, comments, 860-275-7266. You can tweet at us at WNPR Colin. You'll be tweeted back at by Greg Hill. Um, you know, I just want to quickly pause a little bit uh, and talk about Bill O'Reilly as a person. Um, and you know, the portrait of him that emerges in your book is is kind of the portrait that I think everybody expects. I mean, in a weird way, you're expecting this kind of irascible, sometimes irrationally angry person whose ego is just completely out of control, uh, and uh, and and who 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 is more about himself than he is about any particular party ideology or, or anything else. And so then, I mean, that's who he presents himself to be on the air, and and then, you know, you. 
expect the behind the scenes thing to have some new wrinkle on it that actually he's not like that at all. He's the sweetest guy in the world. He's the, you know, and that's just not. <laughs> I don't know the, if anyone expected that. Well, but he's just, he's the, I mean, it sounds like perception and reality, performance and backstage reality are pretty much the same thing. He, more than anyone, I think, that I worked with in my whole time at that network was so like his on air persona. Her, mm. His on-air persona is what he's like behind the scenes. Although I would say on-air, he's he's a lot more gregarious, maybe <laughs> outgoing. Like behind behind the scenes, he's very he, he could be dour and and you know not not quite <laughs> not not quite friendly. Let's say I guess. Well, your description of a pitch meeting where all the producers are getting together and you've all got lists of ideas and you know things that he could talk about and things that you might even be pretty proud of that you know, you found this one thing that you don't think Hannity or Greta Van Susteren or anybody else have. Um, but it seems like th- there is this bullying quality even there that he's almost looking forward to the opportunity to tell you that your idea is stupid uh, and that you are wasting his time. I mean, it's. I, I think he looked. Yeah, I think. <laughs> I think that was the highlight of his week was shooting down our ideas one by one, and you know, bringing, you know, bringing producers to the verge of, <laughs> the verge of tears. Um, you know, it's it's tough to you know, and and I don't. He's number one in cable news for a reason. He does have very exacting standards. That's mm-hmm. fine. But, you know, it, it, it is a nerve-wracking proposition to face. It's, you know, it's like facing a firing squad to, to you know, give your ideas to him. It, it also struck me that it would be very difficult to caricature him, even as Stephen Colbert has sort of essentially managed that feat. But he would be the real him would be harder to caricature simply because there's so many things about him that are already at the level of caricature. I mean, even this notion that you know, I mean, you should tell this tell the story about the wrong cheese on the sandwich. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a guy, we should, just to set the stage, and one of the things that you say that O'Reilly does is though he puts in a very long day, he, puts, he doesn't put a lot of it in, you know, he, he's only there actually there in the building with you for about like four hours or something. He's doing a lot of the other work remotely. But, but when he shows up, um, one of the things he wants, he wants lunch brought to his office, and he wants like a real basic kind of lunch. Yeah, and he's, he's, not, he's not a fancy guy, and to, to his credit, he's not, you know, a lot of his colleagues are dining at, you know, Fancy, you know, power seat restaurants in in, in Midtown Manhattan. No, he just, he just wants a sandwich and a soup at his desk. You know, normal, <laughs> normal guy. And uh, his assistant uh, uh, brings it to him, and she's a lovely and long-suffering <laughs> woman. Um, she brought him a sandwich from must have been Quiznos or one of those, you know, some rinky-dink deli in Midtown. Who even knows? But they got the cheese wrong on the <laughs> on the sandwich. So he he know you know. He noticed. He called her up and he said, hey, look, <laughs> I want you to take this sandwich. I want you to bring it back to the deli. I want you to tell them you made it wrong and give it back to them and get the money back and tell them I said they made it wrong and make sure they know. Tell the manager. Like, And she and she said, she, do you want them to you know, give you the right sandwich? And he said, no. <laughs> tell them Bill O'Reilly said they made it wrong and we want the money back. <laughs> right, right. And that, that place was off his list from then on. And I don't – I don't know if the I don't know if his assistant went and actually did that. She's she's pretty soft spoken. I mm-hmm. doubt she did. But you know, she he, I think he I seem to recall him asking about it later, mm-hmm. ask if she actually did that, you know. So he, he followed up. He remembered like, you know, you <laughs> <laughs> return this sandwich with extreme prejudice. <laughs> <laughs> and um that kind of I mean, there is obviously 
this neurosis. I mean, he's full of bluster and braggadocio, but it seems like what's underlying this is this tremendous fear that it's all going to come crashing down. It's all going to fall apart. I mean, that's the reason usually people impose their will on other people at this extreme level. And and I think that turns up when you talk about his obsession, and it's not unique to television. I'm not singling out Bill O'Reilly. It's this is the way television works. But his obsession with ratings, I mean, describe what it's like when the sheet comes out every day that, that has the ratings on it. Well, it's you know it's like um, he treats it like it's a you know tablet handed down from <laughs> from the mount you know and he he studies it like with a magnifying glass almost because it's just these little tiny columns of numbers and uh, you know every day at four thirty in the afternoon we get the ratings from the previous day's shows and they break it down you know there's a million different ways to slice the data as I'm sure you know but they can break it down by by age group they break it down by um, into quarter quarter hours so fifteen minute increments. So if he sees something, you know, something's something drops, something's higher than it should be, something's lower than it should be, he he investigates and he's like, you know, why why were we, you know, why did we lose two hundred thousand viewers yesterday between the you know thirty minute mark and the forty five minute mark? What you know, what was going on there? And if if he thinks, you know, he thinks, oh, we had that one guest on. I guess people didn't like that guest, so we can't have him on the <laughs> we can't have ever. him on the show anymore. Yeah, ever. But I don't. But like you know. It's not an exact – ratings is not an exact science. I mean they can only, you know, in the best case scenario, really only sort of estimate what's going on. So a lot of these fluctuations are just statistical noise. But don't, you know, try telling that to him. So we should move ahead a little bit in this story and say at a certain point, and a lot of it had to do I think with um, the network's characterization of President Obama – um, you started to get less and less comfortable with your role, and you really decided that this really wasn't the right place to, for you. You decided that the website Gawker might be a really good place for you to go to work. Uh, but you also – you felt like you had like a, something that you could also share with them first. I'll, I'll let you pick up the story from there. I'd always, I'd always been a fan of Gawker, and I'd always wanted to work for them, to, to, to write for them. Um, and so I, I, I approached them. Um, I, I, I sent them an email and just said, hey, I work – you know. I work at Fox News, and and you know, let's let's meet. I didn't tell them who I was. I didn't want to just send my name out there to a random you know tips email box. Um, so we we met, met up with them, and I showed the guy. Uh, the guy's name is John Cook. Uh, he's he's no longer with them, but he was their editor in chief for a while. Um, I showed him my business card. This is who I am. This is who I work for. His eyes bugged out of his head because <laughs> he he'd been sort of on their O'Reilly beat for for a few years, and their and their Fox News beat, and you know. Here, here was this guy delivering, you know, this info to him on a platter, and he was, you know, they, they, they got pretty excited about it. But my, my intention was never to go to, or at least not at first, was never to go to Gawker and say, hey, let me be a spy within the company. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to go to them and say, hey, look, I'm, I can't stand it here anymore. I'm leaving the company. You know, when I leave, I would like to come work for you. Let's, let's talk about that. And it was sort of their idea to say, well, you know, how would you like to come work for us before you leave? Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And, I, you know, I wasn't, you know, even though I was, uh, you know, 30 years old at that point, I was I was I was a little naive. And I said, yeah, great idea. What could go wrong? Well, and you were, you were very careful about this. And, and I won't say there's some, you know, we won't do too many spoilers for the book because there's some interesting things about how you actually did get tripped up. But but one of the things that you were offering them was. Um, just kind of funny behind the scenes video, right? Well, I mean, one was funny. One, one had maybe a little bit more substance to it. Um, the uh, the first one was you had some behind the scenes video just of of Newt Gingrich getting his hair done, right? 
was Newt Gingrich and his uh, his 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 wife is this interesting looking. Um, or Callista is her name. She's yeah. got this great blonde like helmet of hair on her, and she's she's kind of like icy robotic looking. So we we this great clip of her doing his hair, like you know spraying him down with the spray bottle and the brush, and like sort of it's it's you know obviously not you know not the Pentagon Papers that that <laughs> that I'm leaking, but it was it was it was funny, and I thought the Gawker readers might. Be interested in it. I mean, because usually if a guest is coming on, you have a makeup department there at Fox News. They handle the person's – be unusual for somebody's spouse to be there. Right, yeah. right. It, seemed, it it The way she was doting on him seemed a little, you know, silly to me. And it was – it was, you know, it was, just, it was just an amusing clip. There was nothing, you know, there was nothing more – there wasn't a lot of thought that went into it. So you, you, had, uh, you had that and you had um, a sort of an off-air – uh, conversation going on between Mitt Romney and Sean Hannity. Um, although there you really did feel like there was a little bit of substance, at least sort of a, a revelation of hypocrisy, right? There's first uh, Romney's talking about his horses and stuff like that. But then they have a little conversation where Hannity's giving him advice about how to use a teleprompter, right? Or that he should use a teleprompter. Right. They went, Hannity went from making fun of Obama using a teleprompter in one breath to advising, advising uh, Romney to <laughs> do the exact same thing in the next breath. So I thought it was... You know, it was a little bit hypocritical, and it was also just more than anything interesting to see how these two related to each other um, off air because it, it was, you know, Romney was sort of coming off this contested primary where the conservatives had never really embraced him. And here was Hannity as sort of the symbol of, you know, the conservative media world. And he was, you know, it was an uneasy alliance, but they were, you know, it was interesting to see them relate mm. to each other. So you had that stuff, but my sense also is that you. Um, had, you know, in college you'd written sort of a funny, smart-alecky kind of student newspaper column, um, and it was kind of a voice. It's 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 the, the 30-year-old version uh, of that, or however old you are now, version of that is is the voice of this particular book, too. A, a sort of funny, smart-alecky, wise guy kind of um, comic prose that you wanted to write. And my sense is that if you were going to do this collaboration with Gawker and maybe stay long term as mole, as the Fox mole on the Gawker website, the fun of it was not going to be leaking these videos out. The fun of it was going to be developing a certain voice uh, where you were going to tell stories and kind of in your own unique way make fun of what was sitting there right before your eyes. Exactly. The idea was never to say look at these groundbreaking things from behind the scenes at Fox. It was more of just like a slice of life thing, you know, mm-hmm. like what's what's going on at Fox today and, you know, sort of a funny, gossipy, snarky look at the the various, you know, the clash of the various personalities within the network. That was that was always what the intention was. It was never like look at these bombshells from, mm-hmm. you know, information that the public doesn't know. The analogy you made was one dear to my heart was uh, that you were going to be John McClane, uh, the Bruce Willis character from Die Hard inside the skyscraper, you know, barking little uh, taunts and wisecracks and insults uh, to uh, and, and otherwise tormenting uh, the other people in, inside the building. Uh, and but the, and once again, I don't want to give away sort of too much here, but it didn't last that as long as you, you really thought it was going to. And ultimately, um, you were shown to the door. Did you get in a lot of trouble for this? I mean, I know that, you know, a couple of days uh, after you were kicked out of the building, police came to your house and to your apartment and stuff. I mean, did you ultimately, did bad things happen to you as a result of all this? I mean, it was no, you know, it was no walk in the, in the park. Actually, it was a walk in the park because one of the things I was, uh, 
assigned to do was to clean up a park <laughs> in, uh, in in Lower Manhattan. Um, no, I, I Fox, you know, when they found out this book was coming out, hit the roof, mm-hmm. and obviously for obvious reasons, and decided that the way to get back at me would be to press charges over the dumb video clips I leaked. Mm-hmm. So they somehow convinced the Manhattan DA to go along with them, and I ended up pleading uh, to, a, to a misdemeanor charge based mm-hmm. on the... They were saying the this is larceny, cases. basically, that you, you stole something. Right, right. Um, and, and so does that really true? You had to clean up a park? Oh, yeah. I, I was, I was sentenced... service? <laughs> I was sentenced to 10 days of park cleanup and then 200 additional hours of, of community service. Um, and the park cleanup was funny because I was in there with, like... It, there's a lot of like drunken hijinks people on on the park cleanup duty. Mm-hmm. You know, guys like I got drunk and I took a whiz on the subway tracks. You know, and that right. guy that guy got three days. I got ten days. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the, the guy who stole the guy who got drunk and stole a taxi cab. That guy got five days. I got ten days. So mm-hmm. clearly, you know, their priorities are <laughs> are very much uh, straight. There. You're the most it's, serious it's, offender among them. It's, right. It's, it's right. like a uh, there's sort of an Alice's Restaurant quality uh, to all this. <laughs> Um, all right, uh, we've uh, our number eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Let's uh, we're talking to Joe Muda right now. His book is An Atheist in the Foxhole. David from Hamden, I can hear him making something in his microwave. It's probably hot pockets. Uh, David, you're on the air. Yes. Hi, Colin. Um, actually, I was uh, in college with you a long time ago, and I'm calling because I understand you guys are talking about Bill O'Reilly. Mm-hmm. And I missed the beginning of the show. I apologize. But um, I've been offended by his columns in the New Haven Register for the last five or six years. And I've started to study them and try to analyze them. And I've come to the I – want, I want to know what – I want your opinion about – and your, your um, guess opinion about whether I'm crazy or not. But I feel like <laughs> he has a kind of ideological poison he practices on purpose – because I don't think he's stupid, he usually says four or five things that are defendable or just logical or correct. And then he hits somebody like President Obama or somebody who's involved in progressive politics and jumps on them. And the reader is supposed to think because A, B, and C, and D are correct that these points are correct. All right, yeah, I, David, I think we could get the drift of your questions. You've kind of addressed this a little bit, but the way that he asks it, I mean, it, it also can be extended pretty easily into the, the broadcast realm, both the radio show and the TV stuff. It would be possible for O'Reilly to make his points in a nicer way. Um, I, I, I assume that the reason that he yells, shut up, shut up, and calls people idiots and, and turkey heads and, and stuff <laughs> like that is just, I mean, some of it is sheer showmanship. Oh, and, yeah. and some of it is just, that's what his personality it's is. It's a show, anyway. and he, he knows, yeah, part of it is his personality. He just likes to yell and <laughs> part of it is part of it is showmanship and his his audience loves it when he goes off on a on a pinhead as as he would as he would call them uh you know and that's that's part of his that's part of his persona and and a lot of his audience is is sort of you know the reason they watch the show is is for him to blow up at someone and and you know preferably someone who deserves it in their mind 
I mean, I think some of this, too, not to get too Marshall McLuhan about all this, but the, Frank Rich has a really interesting piece uh, in, uh, in New York Magazine, I think it's the current issue, about comedy and, and how conservative, conservative comedy, it's not that it doesn't exist, but it, it, it doesn't exist in the same way that, that mainstream comedy seems to skew pretty heavily left of center. And, and I do feel as though within, and then he sort of, but he could also investigate the possibility that there are more conservative comedians and people realize. But, you know, after a while, you got Dennis Miller and you got Jeff Foxworthy and you got you don't got to have too many of them. It, it does seem as though each ideology, the way it's expressed in mainstream media these days, has a style. And, and the style of conservatism is rather than being sort of Chris Rock funny or Louis C.K. funny, is to be this kind of cartoonish bullying version it's in which there sometimes is a little bit of humor embedded. I don't even really know what question I'm asking you, but just <laughs> respond to my my ramblings. Well, that is that is sort of the, you know, uh, editorial persona that Fox News as a whole developed. I yeah. mean, I mean, O'Reilly and O'Reilly developed it along with them. I mean, when he started, he started when the network started. He was one of their first shows and he was this, you know, it. it he was not as much of a shouter. He was not known for that from the beginning. He was more of like a, you know, it, it, it was a lot more small bore. You know, he he loved talking about, you know, gangster rap. He was more like sort of mm-hmm. the moral police than he was sort of a, you know, ideological person. But as the network developed and as his ratings went up, that just sort of became that, – that's the persona he fell into. I think also though – I mean, first of all, I should lay my tar- cards on the table. I, for 16 years, worked – I sort of was uh, – you and I are sort of blood brothers in a way in the sense that I was on the air on what was an otherwise completely conservative talk radio show. I had a show – and my politics were out in the open. that They are way left of center. And I was the lead-in to Rush Limbaugh on that station for about six years. And then I, I had, had the show after – the drive time afternoon show after Rush Limbaugh for 10 years. Um, and one thing that – one of the things that I concluded was that, you know, at least conservative talk radio – it's a medium that is about anger, and and it's always been that that way. And I think a lot of it is, you know, it's people in cars, and they're stuck in traffic, and they're mad, you know, and they've had already. a crappy day, <laughs> and they didn't sell as many widgets as they thought they were going to, and and you know the highways backed up, and they're just they're really angry, and they want somebody to blame. Right, and the the entire premise of Fox News is based on that. Is based on this sort of, you know white, you know, uh, uh, rural anger that, you know, the the, the world, the, not just the world, but America is rapidly changing. And it's I think it scares a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. And they're looking for that, like, reassurance that, you know, the change is 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 reversible. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that, you know, if only, you know, stuff were, were like it was in the good old days, then America would be great again. You know, Fox News is pushing that line all the time. And obviously, you know, it's 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 a false it's a false narrative. You know, there's no there was no good old days. There's no such thing as that. But, you know, Fox can point to the the others, you know, the immigrants, the you know, the the liberal college professors, the homosexual agenda, you know, point to all that stuff mm-hmm. and point a finger and say them. Those are the others. Those are the ones you're supposed to be mad at. Those are the ones keeping you and your, you know, white heterosexual Christian family down. Well, I'm getting, I'm getting angry here. <laughs> Stirring myself up like O'Reilly. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll come back with our final segment. If you want to call in, 
Clinton brain damage. Done deal. But how about the rumors she got her concussion during a mixed martial arts catfight with uh, Elizabeth Warren? All right, that's it. You cannot say stuff like that. You've turned into the very thing you claim to despise. A strutting blowhard trafficking in half-truths and outright lies. Really? I I didn't mean to be bad. I I just wanted to save the country. Of course you did. Sit over there and have some pita bread. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Greta Van Susteren. For show pages, articles, and proof that the Faith Middleton Show staff is a bunch of commie-kissing, pinko, tree-hugging, closet Canadian bedwetters, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, Alan used salute to comic books. And now... Back to Colin. It's actually been fun to sort of write in that vein today. It's not a voice that we get to use that often here. We're talking to Joe Mudo. He's going to be at the Mark Twain House tonight at 7 p.m. to read and talk about his book, An Atheist in the Foxhole, a liberal's eight-year odyssey inside the heart of the right-wing media. Uh, so go there tonight. It's free. You can get the book uh, signed by Joe. Uh, our number, 860-275-7266. Of course, late in the show, people start to call it. That always happens. <laughs> um, I just want to, you know, and you've had a chance to pull back from this. You, you did wind up leaving Fox going to work for Gawker. Now I understand you're, you're not uh, at Gawker anymore. Uh, even today, I was sort of thinking about your book, and then I went over and looked at Gawker today. And so one of the things that Gawker's jumping on is a uh, an essay in the Washington Post saying that the Santa Barbara shooters are influenced by Seth Rogen movies like <laughs> and Judd Apatow movies like Neighbors. And that sort of touches off this, you know, you, you've seen this so many times in, in your job, this huge ping pong match then just starts, you know, where it just like everybody's chiming in from this or that hyper conservative website or this or this or that hyper hyper liberal uh, website. There's an almost complete vacuum of corroborating information about any of this, like whether this guy has ever seen a Seth Rogen movie in his life. And, of course, Seth Rogen and Judd Apatow are tweeting about this. And there's this – it's like a a cage full of birds that are just squawking in, in this cacophony. I, I mean, now that you can step back from it a little and you're working in a slightly different field, I mean, does it seem kind of depressing and, and, and just like a – I mean, not just Fox News, but the whole thing, the whole birdcage. Well, yeah, the entire cable news industrial complex exists as as an outrage stoking machine. And, you know, Fox is probably the worst offender, but, you know, MSNBC, CNN are, are probably just as guilty of it. And there's this, you know, constant casting about for, you know, the new uh, scapegoat of the day. And and this – I'm not familiar with this uh, – Oh, this, oh, the Santa Barbara shooter. Santa oh, Barbara yeah. shooter oh, that's, yeah. oh, that's a terrible story. And, of course, you know, we're looking for someone to blame. We're, uh, you know, and apparently today, today's flavor to blame is uh, Judd Apatow, which makes, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, which makes sense no sense whatsoever. to anyone. But it, it seems as though it exists outside any real search for the truth. I, I mean, I know that O'Reilly to a certain – I mean, the, you know, the little tape thing that we just played had a little joke in it that actually derives from your book. There's actually a, a moment where O'Reilly announces that he's going to do a 25-part series about everything that's wrong with Barack Obama and that he's going to save the nation. He's going to save the country by doing this. And he means it, right? He, he, he meant it. He thought he, you know, when I said Obama caught Fox News by surprise, it really did. And people did not know what to make of him. They're mm-hmm. like, is this guy, after the Reverend Wright thing came out, people were like, oh, man, this guy's a, you know, this guy's a radical. This guy's going to, you know, turn us all into, you know, Russia. <laughs> you know, red. Squ- it's going to be Red Square in the middle of uh, D.C. Um, 
You know, and, and O'Reilly really did think when he said, we're going to bring this guy down and we're going to save this country. He really did think that that's what he was doing, that by bringing down Barack Obama, he was going to save the country from, I don't know, from <laughs> – if you remember in 2008, things weren't, things weren't going so hot at the uh, tail end of Bush's presidency mm-hmm. there. So I don't know what he thought he was going to save the country from, but, you know. Well, the country did need saving. We was right about that part. <laughs> Here's uh, Beth in West Hartford. Hi, Beth. Hello. How are you? Good. Um, I, I, I uh, don't know if this has been discussed. I'm a little late to the conversation, but I was listening about uh, Joe's uh, stint, you know, spy stint is what I'm thinking. And I'm, by the way, pol- politically, I'm a liberal. Uh, certainly, uh, Fox is, is my enemy. So this is not born out of any interest in defending Fox. Uh, in terms of what you did, in terms of, uh, you know, Spying, so to speak, uh, was, from an ethical standpoint, did that did anything cross your mind? I mean, I'm thinking. Yeah, you're asking. Honest, you're asking I, basically. I don't know that I would ever want to hire you for <laughs> for whatever it may be. Okay, good question. I just don't want to also run out of time. So, her question: Do you want to? Did you wind up feeling bad about any of this? Absolutely, absolutely. That is a totally fair question, and and it's it's something. If you read the book, it's something that I struggled with. That this this decision was sort of not very well thought out. It was spur of the moment. You know, and I, it was never intended to be, I, I think mole is sort of a misnomer. I was not going to be this like guy just handing out confidential information. I, I, I wanted to write a column that was just sort of a slice of life, what it's like to be this conflicted liberal inside of Fox News. I wasn't going to like, you know, rat out all my coworkers. And if you read the book, that's, I don't think that's what the book is either. Um, and, and I think there is a real sense that I'm, you know, struggling with this. And as I said before, there were there were consequences, there were legal consequences. So that that is a good question. It's a totally fair question. You know, it was it was not something that, you know, I think I would, <laughs> I think I would repeat. So, yeah, totally fair question. All right, we're out of time, but thanks to Joe Muto for coming in here. Uh, go to the Twain House tonight, uh, 7 p.m. He'll be there with his book, An Atheist in the Foxhole. Uh, he'll be uh, willing to answer even more questions. You can find out things that we didn't have time to cover today, like the meteoric rise and fall of Glenn Beck. One moment he was riding high, the next, where did he go? You'll find out a little bit more about that if you ask Joe tonight. Thanks for being with us today. All right, and we will be back tomorrow. Uh, it's actually, oh, with Alan Yu's comic book show, How Comic Book Nerds Became Mainstream Culture. I'm Kyone Wolf. Bill O'Reilly wrote a book about the killing of Jesus, and I really appreciate his new research. I mean, who knew that Obamacare was such a big problem even back then?